Amen. Well, if you want to join me in Matthew 23, we'll just continue going till Jesus comes. Now, let's go to Matthew 24. As, as we come there, I want to let you know that with the end of Matthew 23, Jesus has turned a corner. He's done speaking to the religious leaders uh, at any length. He, he speaks very briefly to them during the trials, uh, but says almost nothing there. His focus now is on his disciples. It's still Wednesday of Passion Week. He has spent uh, a good part of Wednesday teaching. We've, we've already seen that. We know from Matthew 26 chapter or verse 6 that he and his disciples have supper at Simon the leper's house in Bethany. So I would imagine it's probably mid-afternoon and they're leaving Jerusalem to begin heading to Bethany, which is a three or four mile walk. Um, there's two discourses in the, these last really 36 hours of Jesus' life prior to his crucifixion. The Upper Rim Discourse is in John chapter, chapters 13 to 16, where Jesus prepares his disciples for their future ministry and what is required of them. <clears throat> in Matthew 24 and 25, we have what's typically known as the Olivet Discourse because the majority of it, he delivers to them on the Mount of Olives. And so here's our, our plan for this morning uh, the, the whole Olivet Discourse is, is prompted by a troubling interaction that Jesus has with his disciples as they're leaving the Temple Mount. That leads to them asking him three excellent questions. His answers to those questions then form the next two chapters. Uh, we're not going to get through these two chapters this morning. You know me better than that. We have a few weeks probably 16, but it's, it's good. And I'm going to explain this morning to you how, how the, the Olivet Discourse breaks down, how it's outlined, and uh, hopefully then you'll see that we're not going to be buried for the next nine weeks in judgment. It's, it's not going to be that dark. Uh, so I want, to, I want to go through this interaction that they have, talk about their questions. I want to give you an outline of the Olivet Discourse I want to share a little bit about my convictions in terms of the end times, and then we'll bring it home with an exhortation. Father, I ask as we come to your word now that you would teach us, that you would feed us, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would build us up and uh, prepare us, lay the, the groundwork for the weeks to come as we carefully and patiently, unhurriedly, examine Jesus' words about the end times. They can be frightening to us and confusing to us. You've, you've given us your word. You don't answer every question that we have, but you answer every question that's necessary. And so help us this morning, uh, even today, with the brief look we're going to take, be encouraged. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 says, in coming out of the temple, Jesus was going along and his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Um, as they're making their way through the temple toward 
Bethany, the most logical place for them to exit would have been through the beautiful gate, which is on the eastern side, the eastern gate of the Temple Mount. It is now, by the way, this is interesting, uh, was sealed up by a Muslim caliph in the 8th century. And uh, Ezekiel 44 begins with a prophecy about the sealing of the gate and says that the Messiah will come through that gate. So just interesting the way that the Lord fits all of this together. As they're making their way through, the disciples are struck by the beauty of the temple and the, the magnificence of the, the structures there. The, the language doesn't tell us what they said, but the, the fact that they're pointing out the temple buildings contains some enthusiasm in it. Um, weren't they used to the temple? Why would the temple have been surprising to them? Well, a couple of things that came to mind as I pondered this. One is that they're Galileans. They're not Judeans. They visited the temple three times a year for the feasts. They would go into the temple to worship, to pray, and to, to bring sacrifices. Uh, if you look at the, the temple complex proper, not the whole Met Temple Mount, but the temple complex proper, uh, you could really squeeze in probably ten or 20,000 people, which is a lot. But historians, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus said that perhaps a million people went to Jerusalem for the feasts every year, or every feast. That's a lot of people, 20,000 at a time. And so I don't think that they had very much chance to linger in the temple. They went in, they did what, what was called for them to do, and then they made room for others to come in. The other thing to keep in mind is that a rebuilding project had been going on now for about 50 years. Herod the Great began it in 19 BC, thereabouts. It wouldn't be finished until 62 or 64 BC. There's about 30 years to go. The last time they were at the temple, this is Passover, the last time they were at the temple, it was the Feast of Tabernacles six or seven months before. And so I think that there's a possibility that each time they come, especially after a six-month break, there's been work done. And perhaps at this point, scaffolding had come down or things had been unveiled that they had not yet seen, and they're just amazed. We need to remember that the, the, the second temple, Herod's temple, certainly by the time it was done, would rival any building in Rome or Athens for beauty and grandeur and design. Herod built it, rebuilt it with, with very strong Greek elements and designs. There were no animal or human carvings because they're banned, but there were carvings of grapes and pomegranates. And it was very impressive. But these men are truly excited. But Jesus answered and said to them, verse 2, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left on another, which will not be torn down. So every one of those amazing buildings, the sanctuary building itself, the surrounding colonnades, the, the Nicanor Gate, which stood between the women's court and the men's court and the high priestly court, all of the buildings that held supplies and the living, the living places of the priests, the colonnades all the way around the Temple Mount itself, all of it's going to be torn down. These structures were built primarily of limestone and marble. The average weight of those stones was somewhere between two and five tons. And they moved them there. They didn't find them there. They moved them there. There is still a stone in the Western Wall Tunnel 
today that measures 42 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet wide. They estimate it weighs 600 tons, and they moved it there. No wonder they're impressed. So when Jesus says, this is all going to be dismantled, this place is going to be reduced to rubble, all of their enthusiasm and excitement just goes out the window. I can imagine as Jesus leads them to the eastern gate and through the gate and down and through the Kidron Valley, that they're very subdued. They get up to the top of the Mount of Olives. They probably stop to rest. They're there when Jesus speaks. He's sitting a little bit away. Verse 3 says he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. So perhaps they pondered and asked one another, what do you think? And they tried to work it out. <coughs> and they, they come to him privately in verse 3. And they ask three really good questions. We can't fault these questions. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And supplying a couple words, what will be the sign of the end of the age? When are these things going to happen? What's it going to look like when you come back? And what's it going to look like when the age comes to an end? There's two questions that they don't ask. Uh, the first question is, what do we do in the meantime? And the second question is, what is the end of the age going to be like? So Jesus answers these questions in the Olivet Discourse. The when question is the easiest to answer. He says in verse 36, of that day and hour no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone which I have interpreted as, that's none of your business. The when is none of your business. The when belongs to God. We're going to deal with that in a, in, a, in a single message when we get there because we need to talk about the relationship of the Father of the Son and the nature of Jesus' deity and humanity. But the, 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 quick, the quick explanation that I have there is that Jesus in his humanity on earth as the, as the son of God did not possess all of the knowledge that the father had. God the son possesses all of the knowledge of God the father. God the father, God the son, God the spirit, they know the same thing. But God the son is in a different position, right? Because he's God the son and he's the son of God. And I think the emphasis there isn't for Jesus to say, I'm giving you a clue here into my limitations. I think the emphasis is that Jesus is saying, in everything, I am submitted to God the Father. And I'm content to leave the wind to him. Now, Jesus has much more to say about the signs of his coming and the signs of the end of the age. We could think of those signs as symptoms or clues that Jesus' return and the end of the age are getting close that still doesn't mean that we'll be able to guess when based on those clues. He says in verse 42, therefore stay awake for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. You don't know. If you happen to get up before sunrise on a, on a typical morning where, where the sky is clear, you get up while it's dark. I know that it's dark at night, Penny. So yeah, Penny doesn't get up before sunrise, but if you, if you get up, well, you know, I just, 
we, we, we're, we're, we're givers. We're sharers, right? Um, if, you, if you go outside, you can see the sky begin to lighten. And if, if you just patiently wait with a cup of coffee and just watch, you, you can just say, okay, here comes the disk of the sun now. And there it is. You see that little golden rim kind of come up and everything gets bright. Well, what Jesus is saying is you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to pay attention to the signs, and if you track them just well, follow a countdown. In fact, he says in verse 27, just as lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will the coming of the man be. Uh, so, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's going to come back like lightning. One of the parables he tells of readiness talks about his coming being like a thief in the night. The homeowner doesn't know when the thief breaks in. So we don't know. We're not going to know. And that leads to the, the, the question of what do we do during this span of time between now and when Jesus returns. And he tells us in these two chapters, we live in the state of readiness. He says, uh, the one who endures to the end, verse 13, will be saved. That's speaking about your faith. The one who endures to the end will be saved. I want you to remain faithful. I want you to remain trusting. And then he says in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. There's an aspect where that's a sign. I think that's also our job. Our job is always to continue to live in faith in Jesus and continue to proclaim his kingdom. And when everything's getting awful, and the signs are building up, and it seems like his coming is, is his imminent, we are to continue to proclaim the gospel. We're never to stop. And then Jesus answers in, in a couple of different passages, what exactly is going to take place at the end of the age? What is judgment going to look like? The age will end, or the beginning of the end will be when he gathers his own. And then in several passages, Jesus describes judgment taking place. And it culminates at the end of Matthew 25, where final judgment is compared to a stockman who separates the sheep from the goats. Uh, if I can put it this way, the state of our world right now is integrated. The wicked and the righteous are side by side and rub shoulders. They influence us. We influence them, not as much as we would like, and they influence us more than we would like. But nevertheless, there are many blessings that come upon the people of God that spill over onto unbelievers. There's a, a, a proverb, Linda would know where it is because she knows proverbs so well, but there's a proverb that talks about when the righteous flourish, the city rejoices because the blessings upon the righteous spill over to, to unbelievers. Likewise, the things that God is doing uh, to, to unbelievers in terms of temporal judgment, we see it in the United States. I believe because of abortion and homosexuality and the other sins, we see a, a hand of judgment on us. It's not final judgment. But we as Christians suffer under the burden of sins we've not committed. And we receive some of the fallout from that. The time is coming when the Lord is going to separate the sheep from the goats, the weeds from the wheat. He's going to separate the two, and then he is going to eternally isolate 
the two. So when we get on the other side of judgment, there will no longer be contact or intermingling between the wicked and the righteous. None. No contact. No conversations. The place of the wicked will be hell. The place of the righteous will be the presence of Christ. There will be no spillover. No, no integration. We will be completely segregated at that point. Not racially segregated. Segregated on the basis of our relationship with Christ. So the wicked won't benefit, as I said, from the influence of the righteous or benefit from the blessings of God upon the righteous. The righteous will no longer suffer the influence of the wicked and the attacks and the belittlement. Neither will we suffer because of God's temporal judgment on the wicked. And and speaking of their influence, it's not simply active persecution. It's just the conversations that go on and the things that we see and that come across our eyes. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know why there would be or if there will be, but let's say that there's television in eternity. I, I don't know why there would be. I'm not saying there will be, but we tell stories and we have technology. Find me a place in the Bible where it says when Jesus comes, all technology vanishes. It doesn't say that, so I don't know. My point is, if there is television in the new heavens and the new earth, you won't see fornication. You won't see drunkenness. You won't see two men holding hands or two women wearing wedding dresses. You won't see a man who thinks he's a woman or a baby or a bunny rabbit. What would be there would be utterly righteous. No influence. So I want to give you an outline of the Olivet Discourse. Penny is going to bring up a slide. There are three primary areas that Jesus addresses. The blue are statements of readiness. You have this, by the way, in the, the, uh, the bookmark that was in the bulletin. If you didn't get them, they're, they're over there. So in 24, 4 to 8, he wants us to be ready. He says there, don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. He goes on then to talk about the signs of false prophets and apostasy increasing. In 24, 13, and 14, he talks about readiness again and the need for enduring faith, the need for continuing evangelism, that we just don't, we, we don't stop trusting him and we don't stop our basic job. In 24, 15 to 24, the sign of the abomination of desolation, that's such an esoteric phrase that when Matthew wrote his gospel, he, he added a comment. Jesus says you'll see the abomination of desolation, and then Matthew inserts, let the reader understand. So even for the average Jew, they would have said, huh? Well, it's understandable. We'll see what that's going to be. I, I promise you that the scripture reveals itself to us. Then he moves on again to readiness, that the Son of God is going to come like lightning. So be ready. Be ready. He moves on to the first statement of judgment in 29 to 30, 31, uh, where the elect are gathered. Why is the elect being gathered the first step of judgment? Because before final judgment comes, God removes his people from, from that sentence. Jesus has borne our sins. He has borne the wrath of God against us. 
your sins, past, present, future, every sin you've ever committed, if your faith is in Christ, has already been paid for by him. The sins you haven't committed yet have already been paid for. God doesn't go back in time and add them to him. Otherwise, Jesus would have never stopped suffering. Our salvation is complete. He moves on again to readiness, and and he tells us five parables, by the way, of readiness. The first one is the parable of the fig tree. When you see the leaves appear, you know that summer is near. Be ready. Be paying attention. Verses 24 Uh, 34 and 35 are judgment. He says, this generation will not pass away. I don't believe he's talking about the generation hearing him at that moment. I think he's talking about the generation that see these things take place. And I think that his point is that once this begins, it's not going to last thousands of years. It's going to be over in a fairly short span of time. Verse 36 is the famous none none of our business passage. And again, I think that it's important that we understand the nature of the incarnation, the nature of Jesus' submission to the Father, and the nature of what God reveals and doesn't reveal. That there are simply things that he doesn't tell us. That we would love to know. We would love to know. 24, 37 to 41 is another statement of judgment. He talks about it being just like the days of Noah. Jesus' focus in that is is just like in the days of Noah, people would be marrying and giving marriage and eating and drinking. In other words, life is just going on in complete ignorance that judgment is about to fall on them. It wasn't until the raindrops started to hit that the people of Noah's day said, hey, what's going on? But see, here's the thing. They knew what was going on because Noah had been preaching. They simply chose to disregard it. And I think that the days of Noah would include, I think, would include the moral condition of the world at the time where every thought of man is sin only and the world is filled with violence. Then four parables in a row about readiness from chapter 24, verse 42 to chapter 25, verse 30, a long passage on readiness. The parable of the thief in the night. The homeowner doesn't know when the thief is going to break in. The parable of the faithful slave. Blessed is the slave that the owner finds doing what he's supposed to do when he comes back. Be ready. Be faithful. The parable of the ten virgins, which is not a parable of smart Christians and stupid Christians. Well, I've heard it positioned that way of, okay, and and in fact, one of the things I'll talk about tonight, I'll give you a preview. With all the different millennial views, there's a view called... uh, Uh, partial rapture where only the Christians who are really serious get raptured. The problem with that view is that Jesus says in this parable to the foolish virgins, I don't know you. Well, then they're not Christians. So I think the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents are comparable in that what the virgins have is the gospel. And five of them said, yes, I believe that, and they were ready. And five of them said, eh, who cares? And then when Jesus came back, it was too late. The talents, the parable of the talents, is not the gifts God has given you. It's not your abilities. It's not music. It's not being able to sow. It's not how, much, how smart you are, how much money you have. It's the gospel. God has given revelation to everybody. 
There's one guy who's given five, and he produces another five when the master returns. Another guy has two, and he produces two. See, it doubles. You gave me the gospel, and that produced life in me, and I trust you and I believe. But the guy who got one buried it. He didn't believe. He just disregarded it. And he's cast out into a place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's not good. And then the final judgment, the eternal separation of the sheep and the goats, takes place at the end of of chapter 25. There's the outline. You've got it on, on the bookmark. You can track as we go. I promise to the best of my ability, as I understand now, that I'm only going to preach this number of sermons, but I don't know. There may be a combination. Maybe some of them will combine. I want to, uh, because we're, we're talking about end times, the, 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 the all of that discourse is not hugely dependent on a millennial view. It's not hugely dependent on somebody being premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. I think that there's a couple statements that support premillennialism personally. Um, but being premillennial, uh, that impacts how I view scripture. And so I just want to kind of give you a, a, a picture of my convictions about the end times. I'm going to go over through, again, through this tonight in, in more depth. But just briefly, one of the primary passages of Scripture that we deal with when, we, when it comes to the millennial kingdom is Revelation chapter 20. It says in the first four verses, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, that's a millennium, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their witness of Jesus and because of the word of God and who also had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark of their on their forehead or their and on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years there's the millennium again in Revelation 1 to 10 thousand years appears six times so the, the, the three views are premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Amillennialism is the belief that the millennium is not literal but symbolic. It's allegorical. It teaches that Jesus is reigning now from heaven over the hearts of his saints, and that's the full extent of his kingdom in this world, in this fallen world. It's not going to be any greater than that. It teaches that there's an ongoing spiritual battle between good and evil, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan that will not end until final judgment. My problem with that view is that Revelation 20 says Satan is going to be bound, cast into the abyss. The abyss will be shut and sealed, and he won't be able to deceive the nations. I'm not sure about you. I don't want to put any thoughts into anybody's head. I think he's deceiving the nations. All millennialists believe that the millennium so-called is going on now, 
But do we really think that Satan is bound right now and not deceiving? It doesn't make sense to me. Postmillennialism is the belief that Jesus will personally return after the millennial period. That is, the millennium is real, although it may not be a thousand years. Um, they deny, postmillennialism denies that Jesus will personally establish and rule over his kingdom. Instead, the, the millennium will begin when the church has, by preaching the gospel, Christianized the world. Christianized is their term. So that when that happens, you won't be able to find a non-Christian. There may be some, but they will be so few and far between that statistically there won't, there won't be any. At that point, a golden age will begin, and golden age is their term. And that golden age could last 100 years or 5,000 years. And then Jesus will return to institute final judgment. Well, again, my problem, again, is that that's not what we see taking place in Revelation 20. And as we're going to see in Matthew 24, 22, Jesus says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. Why do you need to cut short a golden age? Who's in danger if there's a golden age? See, what Jesus seems to say is as the end approaches, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. The judgment of God doesn't need to get cut short, ever. God's judgment is going to be surgically precise. It won't go one step less than it should by his wisdom and justice, and it won't go one step further. He's not going to lose his temper and start raging through the universe only to have the Son of God put his hand on his shoulder and say, Dad, Dad, come on, calm, calm down. That's enough. So he's talking about human cruelty and violence against people, especially against the elect. It just doesn't match. Premillennialism, which is the view that I take, is the belief that Jesus will return personally to initiate his kingdom on earth, which will last for a thousand years, a millennium. The end times will unfold exactly and literally as the scriptures describe. So Jesus will personally reign over the affairs of mortal men, from Jerusalem, I believe his government will be the only government. Resurrected and glorified believers will reign with him on earth. Satan will literally be bound. Now, he's not going to be physically chained because he's an angel, but he will be bound. He will be in the abyss. The abyss will be shut and sealed so that he can't deceive the nations. Then he'll be released so that he can deceive many. And those many will gather into a single army, come against Jerusalem, and be devoured by fire from heaven. That will immediately be followed by the great white throne judgment. One of the advantages of being premillennial is that my interpretive approach allows me to begin at, at Revelation 20, verse 1, and go all the way to the end of the chapter without shifting anything. Amillennialism and postmillennialism say the first 10 verses are figurative or are allegorical and symbolic and spiritual. But then once you get to the great white throne judgment, amillennialism and postmillennialism says, oh, no, that's going to happen just like it says. So what changes so that you go from a spiritual, allegorical, symbolic view to a literal view? I simply think that premillennialism uh, has, uh, has fewer issues. It's not that premillennialism doesn't have gaps. I'm just more comfortable with my gaps 
than with than those things. So let me let me bring this home uh, with an exhortation. The Bible is true. Jesus is coming back. If you know somebody who is all millennial or post millennial, if they're biblical Christians, they believe Jesus is personally returning. They believe that just as much as premillennialists do. The area of disagreement is when. That's the only disagreement. That's the only disagreement. What Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse is going to happen as, as exactly as he said it will. I'm convinced of that. The signs will unfold just as he said they will. Judgment will proceed just as he says it will. Those who submit to Jesus as Lord and trust him as Savior are called to, to continue to believe and follow his instructions in Scripture and to continue to proclaim Christ. We have to be ready at any time, not just for his return, but for the signs, which is why he says, don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. I've told you ahead of time. He's doing this so that we can be prepared. <coughs> we don't know when he'll come back. We don't need to know when. We only need to know what we are to do until he does. We just need to be ready. There, there are times that... Um, Linda and I have got to be prepared for sudden changes in our schedule. We're not constantly occupied with those changes. We don't walk around with those possibilities in our head all the time. That's not the only thing we think about. But we know, as I, I mentioned in Creighton this morning, if Linda got a call or a, a, a text from Kevin in the middle of the service saying he'd fallen out of his chair and hurt himself, we'd be gone. We know that. We haven't even talked about it, but we're in agreement. We're ready to act. So when I talk about being ready for Jesus comes, I don't mean that's all you ever think about. I don't mean that, that the only thing you ever do is study the end times. I mean you live in faith and you follow him as Lord. You keep your heart clear before him. The, the colored outline, could we go back to that? The, the colored outline that I showed you has got 16 blocks. You've got a three-verse preface. The, the other 15 blocks are all even size so that I can put them up there. But the, the two blocks that deal with signs cover about 20% of these two chapters. The judgment passages cover about 30%. 50% of these two chapters is being ready. That's the dominant message. It's not a message that's dark or dismal. The plans of God are unfolding just as he said. And Jesus cared about his disciples enough and us to say, here's what's going to happen. You be ready. You be ready. Sometimes premillennialists are, are criticized for believing that Jesus is going to rescue us, that he could return at any moment. That's been called escapism. Uh, as recently as this year, uh, premillennialists have been called ha as uh, uh, premillennialists have, have been said to have loser theology. Premillennialism, the belief in a rapture, is just loser theology. It's just escapism. Well, all, all I can do is say, say what Jesus said. He's going to come back like a thief in the night. He's going to come back like a lightning bolt, and that's the next thing. Jesus doesn't say, "Don't be deceived." Don't be alarmed. Keep awake. Look for the signs of, uh, of the grand 
golden age, the next thing we're to be looking for is him. That tells me he could come back at any time. But a post-millennialist can't say he can come back at any time because we haven't yet Christianized the world. <clears throat> I want to encourage you that Jesus doesn't criticize those who long for his return. If you're ready to go home, so am I. If you're ready for this world to be undone, so am I. The only reason the Lord hasn't done it yet is that there's more people to save. He has not yet poured out his mercy as he wills. But Jesus doesn't say we have loser theology for wanting to be with him. He doesn't accuse us of escapism. In fact, this is what he prays in John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. If I can say this without over sentiment, sentiment being overly sentimental, sentimentalizing Jesus, he wants to be with us more than we want to be with him. We manage to think about being with him once in a while. He is constantly thinking about being with us, and he is praying us home. It's on his mind far more than it's on ours. And so, as far as I'm concerned, go ahead and dream of heaven. Go ahead and dream of the new earth. Long for his return. Hunger for him. Hunger to worship him without sin and without weakness and without sickness and without the sorrow of loss and the distractions of this world. Hunger to live in a world where you could walk over to any body of water that you see, cup your hand and drink without fear. Hunger for a world where the air is pure. Hunger for a world where the ground is not trying to fight you all the time as you make a living. That's okay. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus is coming. I thank you that this world in which we live will not simply go on eternally. I thank you that you will bring things to a head and then bring them to a close. And that all of your people, not just those who have died and, and are with you now, but all of your people are with you where you are. We thank you so much for that. These are challenging things to think about. Primarily because they haven't happened yet. Once they've happened, it'll be clear. And Lord, I'll just say for me, if, if you want to institute a worldwide revival so that for a thousand years nobody exists but a Christian, I'm, I'm all for it. I just don't see that that's what you tell us in your word. So help us as these weeks unfold to be encouraged, to take readiness seriously, to recognize what signs are there and to not be afraid of them, and to have an urgency in our hearts for the gospel because of the judgment to come. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.